I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. I'm so excited that Recliner NYC is partnering with me because I found this longish nightgown thing, and I don't wear nightgowns usually, but it, it's like a floor-length kind of dress made out of the softest fabric I've ever felt. And the front is light gray and the back is black and it goes all the way to the floor. And I saw it on an ad on Instagram and had to get it. And now I bought it and I'm obsessed. So we went after the recliner in New York City and they gave us a discount and um, you can find it on my website. It's amazing. I'm so excited to partner with them. Um, <laughs> Nine-tenths of the customers told them that their products have helped improve their sleep, which I totally believe because these pajamas and my nightgown and everything are functional, but kind of stylish and really awesome. So go to recliner.nyc and use code MOMSXRECLINER, MOMSXRECLINER, and you get 20% off, which I wish I had had when I got my nightgown. So anyway, go check it out and tell me what you think. I loved it. I had the best time talking to Ruthie Lindsay, who is the author of There I Am, The Journey from Hopelessness to Healing, a memoir. A speaker, author, podcast host, and social media figure, Ruthie travels the globe sharing her story, empowering others to find purpose in their pain and to, quote, look for beauty in the midst of their sacred wounds. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am, like, so honored to talk to you. I adored Aww. your book. It was so good. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. I'm so appreciative that I received that. <laughs> Thank oh. you. You know, it's <laughs> funny because when I was first pitched your book, I read about it, but it was one of the only books that included a trailer, right? Oh, so yeah. Jessica Roth, anyway, the trailer, I was sitting on the floor with somebody who I used to work with and we were sitting there watching your trailer, sobbing. Aww. So anyway, so I, I was preparing myself for your book before I read it. And it was so good. Anyway, sorry oh, to go on and on, but. Thank you. That is so kind. And I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to do this. With me. Well, for reading the book in the first place, that's a big commitment. I'm like, man, that it, I don't know. It's not lost on me that that takes up a lot of time. And so the fact that you would choose to do that, it means a lot to me. So oh, thank you so no, much. I read every page and I was clinging on every word. And there were times, honestly, when some of the things were happening to you in the book where I almost like couldn't face it anymore. Like some of the <laughs> medical stuff. I mean, you have been through so much. <laughs> it's been a journey. <laughs> it's been a journey. I should probably, yes. I should probably ask for the people listening since I just like jumped right into that. Could you please explain, <laughs> tell listeners what your book is about, please? Yeah. So it's my first memoir and hopefully my only book. Oh my God, what a journey. And it's just, it's basically me getting to share my story. I have kind of, you know, everyone has a lot of hard things and trauma and loss and pain if you're <laughs> here in earth school. But my story starts out in South Louisiana where I grew up. And when I was a senior in high school, I pulled out in front of an ambulance and he hit me on my car door going 65. So I broke three ribs and they punctured my lungs and my lungs collapsed and my spleen ruptured. And then I broke the top two vertebrae in my neck, which at the time they told me I had a 5% chance to live and a 1% chance to walk. And I mean, I was 
very lucky to be an ambulance because he knew what to do, right? But I, they got me to the emergency room and got me on life support. They had to do like an emergency surgery for my internal bleeding and put in chest tubes. But then after I was stable, I guess it took about a week before they could get me off life support. They went in to fuse my neck. So they took bone from my hip and they wrapped it with wire once they had my neck back into place. And that was just the you know, that's what they did back then in the late 90s. And so I was in the hospital about a month. I I was just really lucky. I was so young and healthy. And I mean, I left there with like half a shaved head and a neck brace. But otherwise, you would never know looking at me anything had happened. Like all my scars are hidden from my clothing and or my hair, you know, and I just, I kind of looked like the picture of health. I mean, I I wore a neck brace for about five months or so. But after that, I mean, I honestly, I did not have any real residual effects at the time. Like, I mean, if I would like dance too much, I would get sore. And that's about the gist of it. And, and honestly, I think a lot of times when we're traumatized, like we disassociate just to survive, right? And so I completely had done that. I mean, I would talk about it in like third person. And I'd always say that it was like so much harder on my family and friends than it was on me. Cause I just, I didn't remember much. I was on life support, you know, I was drugged and I was out of it and I just kind of completely left my body. Like I, so I was very disconnected and it was a very third person thing at the time. And I mean, I, I was super lucky. I, it happened on my dad's birthday, my senior year, which was November 2nd. I went back to school after Christmas. I was able to graduate on time. Like it was, it's pretty wild. It was, it was a very speedy recovery. And I went on to college, you know, I was still very disassociated for sure. I definitely had some like eating things. It was just trying to stuff my feelings to avoid all of it, you know, but I would still, I mean, I'm very Southern. I was like, show up, you smile, you be sweet, you be pretty. Like that was kind of, that's what it was taught to me growing up, right? So I did that. And so no one would really know that I was inside struggling and because I never showed that part of me at that time. And so then I moved to Nashville right out of college. I was offered a job and I met my first boyfriend and my parents were like so stoked. He was a boy because they were convinced I was a lesbian. I'm like, I wish that would be such a dream. (laughs) No, I like boys. (laughs) But I just had never been real interested in dating before that. And we were like, oh my God, just super earnest trying to be Christians, like the Southern thing. And we felt so guilty about having sex that we literally got married 10 months later (laughs) because we were just little idiots. And, you know, we were just hopeful. And he was a musician. I toured with him and excited about starting our lives. We bought a house and we had all these dreams. And about a year into our marriage, we were so young. One day I was like walking in front of a Starbucks and this crazy shooting pain went up my neck. And, and I remember thinking, did I just get struck by lightning? <laughs> but it was this gorgeous day or shot. Like it was that, it was that intense. It was so debilitating. And I fell to my knees and I remember feeling like I was going to vomit. And I was left with this like black inky spots in my eyesight um, like this migraine. And I mean, of course, that it was so scary because I had no idea what that was. And after I was able to collect myself, I went home. We started going to all these different doctors 
And every time I'd go see a different doctor, they'd have me do a film. I believe it, I always get MRI and CAT scan confused, but I'm pretty sure it was MRI. And every time the MRI film would come back, there'd be this black spot on my film where my spinal cord fusion was. And they'd say, oh, that's just the magnet in the machine interacting with the wire from your fusion. Everything around it's fine. They started me on the, all these therapies. Nothing helped. I mean, I've tried <laughs> every therapy under the sun. And then they started me on narcotics because I was just in so much pain. And I didn't want to hurt all the time. So I took everything <laughs> they suggested, right? And I mean, that started me down a pretty dark path. I eventually found myself like in bed for a, a good part of more than like four years. So probably about four and a half years, I was just living in my bed and taking all of the narcotics, you know, not showing up as a partner, watching a ton of TV, eating my feelings, not working, not showing up as a sister, an aunt, a friend. I mean, my life just halted you know, it completely. And it felt very dark and very hopeless just because we kept seeing a ton of different doctors and we tried the things they recommended. And anyway, after about four and a half years, finally, a doctor was like, I can't tell you what's happening until I see what's under that spot. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like that sounds so like, right. Okay. So basically a $50 x-ray. I mean, what's also interesting is my husband's an artist and so I was self-employed. So everything had been out of pocket because it was a pre-existing injury. So every time I get like an MRI, it would be, you know, $1,500, $2,000. And so finally this doctor's like, oh, we need to do a $50 x-ray. And basically what they discovered is one of the wires from my previous spinal cord fusion had broken and pierced into my brainstem. And I'm the only human that's ever had that. And, you know, I'm... Thankfully, they spared me a lot of the details at the time because I couldn't have handled it. I was not in a good place. But they told me basically, you know, you're the only person in the world. You shouldn't be walking. If we don't get this out, you won't be walking. Surgery itself is super high risk of paralysis. But what I've learned since is, you know, that's where my wire was, was in my reptile brain right? Our oldest part of our brain. So if someone's on life support, that's what they're keeping alive. So that is like, that's it. That's like the main source of like, you know, I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be speaking. I shouldn't be breathing. I shouldn't be, of course, walking, but like, I shouldn't be anything like that, you know? And so it was really scary. And we knew I had to have the surgery. Insurance wouldn't cover it. So my dad, who we call Papa, oh, it's so precious. He, it's hard to describe him. I just, like, if he walked in the room, you would be drawn to him. You'd want to go stand in his presence. He was the most magnetic human. I think I've ever known this larger than life. He's six, four, <laughs> just his eyes like glowed, you know, and he just drew people in. And I mean, he plowed our garden with a mule. He was like this, I don't know how to describe. It's so wild. Like, I don't know anyone else like him. And every time he'd leave my brothers and I, when we were children, he'd say, I love you so much. Remember your manners and always look out for the little guy. <laughs> like that was his thing. He wanted us to look out for the people that everyone else would miss, you know? And so he had told my mom and my godfather that he was going to come see me and tell me he would sell our farm so that I could have the surgery because insurance wouldn't cover it. And on his way, he stopped to visit our Amish friends because we have Amish friends. <laughs> 
as you do, to pick up like a donkey or a mule, who knows. And we don't know exactly what happened because he was alone at the time, but somehow he tripped and fell down a flight of stairs and ended up passing of brain damage. And we just actually had the anniversary of his death last week. And, you know, it was just... It was such a massive loss. Like, and it wasn't just a loss for like me and my family. It was a loss for a massive community because he had touched so many people's lives and it changed so many people's lives. He was in education. And so, yeah, I just remember I would like pinch myself until I'd literally bleed in my bed because I'd be like, wake up. You're in a nightmare. This can't be real. This can't be your life. You know, it's interesting. Just yesterday, a Facebook memory came up, which I never look at those, but I just happened to look and it was the day after we had buried my dad and I'd gone to see a doctor that my brother had set up and they had told me kind of all the details about like what we had to do and how bad it was. And, and I posted on Facebook, I was like, I just had a horrible doctor's appointment and it's really hard for me to believe that there is a God that's good. And I remember just, I felt that so deeply. I remember feeling so abandoned and I felt so forgotten and lost, which was never true. But that's what my sweet little self felt in that moment, you know? And I just read that yesterday and it just broke my heart. And I wanted to just wrap her up and be like, oh my gosh, you precious soul. Um, Anyway, it... It was heartbreaking and hard, but what was so beautiful in the midst of that is my godfather ended up setting up this medical fund in my dad's honor for me to have this life or death surgery. And people started coming out of the woodworks being like, your dad paid my rent. Your dad bought my prom dress. Your dad fixed my roof. Your dad sent me on my senior trip. Your dad sent me on my first year of college. I mean, And I need you to know that we did not have very much, like at all. But my godfather who owned this bank, he was like, yeah, he would take out loans so that he could go and do these things for other people. And he was just, that was him. And it felt like, I mean, the full amount of money was raised for me to have this crazy spinal cord fusion because of the way he had shown up and loved people in the world. Like, I just feel so honored to be Lloyd Lindsay's daughter, you know, like it's just such a privilege. Um, And so he did that for me. And I started being pursued by all these doctors, like they get off on being the one person to do a surgery. So I was literally like a beetle. They all wanted me. (laughs) Like I was heavily pursued. And I ended up choosing Mayo Clinic. And this top neurologist, top orthopedic surgeon did it together. And they're like, we hope it'll help with your pain. But like, listen, this is the keep you breathing and walking and living. And so, you know, I put all my hope in this thing outside of me to help me make be better. And we went in, they took the wire that was piercing my brainstem, took bone from my other hip. And this time they refused it with titanium screws and because wires can break (laughs) super rare, but it happens. And, you know, I'll spare you all the details of the hospital. It was really hard. And, you know, I've been on so many narcotics up to that point that it was so hard for them to get my pain under control. Because I mean, I was like on one of the highest levels of fentanyl patch before going into the hospital, which they give dying cancer patients. And so I would have told you I lived at a 10 before that surgery. And then I was like, oh, just kidding. I didn't know my pain could be this much worse. It was, I remember I just had like pop blood vessels from like screaming, you know, in my eyes. Like I, 
it was real hard. But after a week, I had my head shaved again. I had another big ass back brace and I walked out of there with that wire in my hand and a lot of pain. And after the pain from the surgery died down, I ended up realizing I had pretty severe nerve damage. My whole right side just felt like it was on fire, like all the time, completely burning fire. Like the best way I know how to describe it. I don't know if y'all know about this because I'm from the South, but we have fire ants, like red ants. And one time I was my right foot because it's down my whole entire side. My right foot was standing in a pile of fire ants. And my brother yelled at me. He's like, babe, move. And I had like over a hundred fire ant bites up my right leg. And I didn't know it because I think partly because I was disassociated, but also that's just what it feels like. Like it's fire, right? And so I didn't know. And so I actually walked straight back to my bed. I was on even more drugs at this point and way more hopeless because that one thing I'd put all my, you know, hope in didn't fix me. I mean, it fixed me in the sense that I was walking, but I couldn't even see that really. I I was still in so much pain. And I was like, these four walls are going to be the rest of my life. And that felt so dark and so hopeless. And so I actually lived in my bed for two more years until a different, a whole other (laughs) wild events happened that basically took me to my breaking point. My marriage was coming to an end. I caught C. diff in the hospital for a different surgery, which is just a whole other story. And that was dark. And I hit a wall, like it was more than a wall. I had a complete nervous breakdown. I stopped sleeping. My life felt over. My husband was on tour in Australia. He couldn't deal with it anymore. And I didn't blame him. I'd been like that for seven years, you know? And can you imagine how hard that would be for a partner? I mean, we were babies, you know, and this started a year into our marriage. He was 21 when we got married and I just, I broke. And now I love to call it my breakthrough, but it was a breakdown. It was so traumatic. And I remember feeling shame on a level that's hard to even put into words. Like I felt like I was sweating shame every part of my being felt so ashamed of myself. And I grew up in a world that was like, what you portray on the outside is what matters, right? And what I was portraying on the outside was a complete nightmare. Like I couldn't take care of myself. I, I kept ending up in the emergency room because, and I, someone would have to take me because I was so sick and I was so not okay. And I just, which is such a story and it's not true, but I would just think over and over, I'd have panic attacks all night and be like, my dad is so ashamed of who I am. I had a lot of just very limiting lies in my head that were not true, but I believed with every part of me and my family were, they were amazing. And I had to move in with my older brother who we've been close my whole life. He like helped raise me and they were going to send me away to get help because I was obviously not okay. And again, because I cared so much what people thought the next day, I literally started weaning myself off the drugs out of fear of being sent away of what people would think, which is the most ridiculous motivation, but who cares? It got me to get off these freaking drugs, which you know, narcotics are really, it's created for acute pain, not long lasting chronic things because you just need more and more and more and you become a shell. I was a shell of a human. And when you numb the hard, painful things, you're also numbing every beautiful, good, sweet, lovely thing. And so my life just felt void of all, (laughs) all, all beauty. It just felt dark and hopeless. And so I, started weaning off everything. I I mean, I had to relearn how to live. I remember 
And again, the motivation is don't get sent away. So I made this list of things to like learn how to live again. I remember making a list of like eight o'clock, you get out of bed and you don't get back in that bed until it's dark outside. And I'm like, what the hell do people do all day? I, I literally don't know. I would like watch my nephews to see like, what do humans do all freaking day long? And I'd be like, 8.05, brush your teeth, like scratch that off. 8.15, eat breakfast, scratch that off. And so at first it was literally like that. It was going through the motions, feeling dead and numb inside. And then, you know, I don't know if it was like my higher self, if it was my dad, if it was God, the universe, whatever, who cares? But something told me, to write a list of things I'd love to do before I had pain. So I remember writing this list. This is probably two or three weeks in. And I was like, Ruthie, you love flowers. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm like, yes, you do. You love them. And then I was like, you love sunsets. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, yeah, you do. You love them. And I remember I wrote, you love people. And I swear to you, I remember having this like maniacal laugh of being like, no, I don't. <laughs> They're the worst. I'm like, yes, you do. You love them. So I started making myself each day do one thing on that list that I had loved before I had pain. And I don't know. I think, you know, I think now I think the action has to come first. And I just was like hoping that an emotion would ultimately come, but it was like the motion had to come first. And it took a few weeks. I would do something each day. And finally, as I was like coming off of these drugs and able to feel the level, I mean, listen, I was feeling my pain very viscerally and, you know, de-thawing, I guess would be a great way to describe it. And it was very scary and very hard, but I also was able to start seeing beauty and that almost became my new mission. It was like, look for beauty everywhere. And when you see it, talk about it, speak it out loud and experience it and in people and in things and in places. And it was almost like my new drug, you know, because I, and, and I remember in that same time hearing this quote that the deeper sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain and bawling crying when I read that. Cause I was like, that is going to be my story. I am going to get to experience joy on like such a soul level, you know? And so that became kind of my mission. And I mean, so much has happened. That was a little over seven years ago. So much has happened since then. I mean, I, you know, my marriage ended, I ended up moving home. It took me about four months to get off all the drugs, which was the best thing I've ever done in my life. You know, the thing that I remember feeling like refalling in love with the things around me, like I remember seeing my nieces and nephews, most of them had been born while I was in the state, right? And all of a sudden I would look at them and be like, oh my you are such a miracle, <laughs> you precious, beautiful child. Like they are the most magical kids. I can't even tell you, I'm so madly in love with these children. And I hadn't seen them. I had just been in this fog only thinking about my pain. And I think we teach people how to see us. And so all I had taught anyone was I was my pain. And I believed that with every part of me. And so when people would see me, they'd be like, how are you? How are you feeling? And they felt sorry for me. And I felt almost validation in their sympathy, right? It validated me living in my bed, not showing up as a partner, not working, not showing up as a sister or an aunt or a friend. And, and all of a sudden in that time when I was changing my life, because it was like, whatever I was doing obviously isn't working. So I need to do the opposite in every way. And 
I remember being like, I want, when people leave me, I want them to feel seen. I want them to feel heard and loved and not sorry for me. And so, you know, it's so fun now. It's not even a conversation. I mean, right now it's a conversation because my book came out today. (laughs) So we're, I'm talking about my pain more than I, you know, but like my best friends tell me all the time, like, I forget that that's even a part of your story because that's not what I lead with anymore. And I've learned so much over the years about like mind body connection and about how our body holds on to trauma and can get lodged there until we learn how to process it. So the last seven years have just been this beautiful, hard, painful, amazing, every emotion under the sun, because I feel it all now. (laughs) I'm no longer numbing it, you know, and it's the most glorious brutal, beautiful, painful experience, but I get to experience life. I get to experience people. I get to, I have the absolute privilege. I'm on my period, so I feel really cry. <laughs> but like, I have the absolute privilege of like showing up and being like, listen, like we were created to heal and I get to do this work on myself and then get to show up and be a mirror of that to those around me. Like I can't fix anything. I went, I can't fix anyone else. I can only do this on myself. But what I can do is do that work for myself and then show up and be a mirror of that love for everyone around me and a mirror of like this healing is for you. This love is yours. This divinity is in you. Like I even say that in my book. I'm like, listen, when you finish this, forget me, forget my name, forget my story. This is for you. Healing is for you. This hope is yours. This love is yours. You don't need me. I'm going to get the fuck out of the way so you can do this journey because you're so deserving. We're so, and it's, I feel like the healing journey is remembering what's so right with us, not what's wrong with us. And it's an unlearning more than anything else. Cause I thought I was so broken. I believed that I thought my body hated me. I thought it was, you know, it was the source of this pain. So I thought my body had just completely failed me. And now I'm like, Oh my God, this beautiful body that's just been loving me and holding me and like, holding the divinity within me and calling me home and just protecting me and being so strong and so resilient and loving me so hard when I hated her. And I think all of these painful things that happened ultimately were all these invitations to come home to myself and to do this work. Like if my life had turned out the way I thought it would, I would be a very surfacy human that had would never have woken up that would never have gone so deep would never have been able to be a good friend honestly an empathetic friend i i wouldn't be able to show up in the world the way that i believe i can now and have the honor of getting to now because all those things happened and i wouldn't change it you know like i i wouldn't change one single thing cuz i know it all created me to be this human that I have the honor of getting to be today that's messy and all of the, you know, like that's, that makes tons of mistakes, but also is filled with so much goodness and wonder and beauty, just like every other soul on planet earth. And so I just talked for a really long time, (laughs) but that's, that's a bit of the story. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for telling the story again. I mean, I know I just read it, but hearing it directly from you and your emotion and your eyes and oh my gosh, I, oh oh my gosh, 
The fact that you would go through all that and say you wouldn't change a thing. I mean, you are like, not like Gandhi, but you're like a, a no. you're like a spiritual like gift to the world now. Like, and I think that's what you're like excited about yourself, right? The, 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 the power that that holds and enable to help so many people. I mean, it's really beautiful. Mm. And your story is Thank unlike you. anything I have ever heard. And you are, mm. oh my gosh, my grandmother would say you are one tough cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. We're such resilient beings. Like, and we're so, you know, at 17, if you had told me what was coming, I'd been like, just kill me now. Bye. I gotta go. (laughs) Like, I don't think, but that's what's so amazing. We are so strong and we are so resilient and we are so worthy. And I don't think that we're, we don't have a tenth of a clue of how, resilient we actually are and our power and our strength. Like, you know, you hear people say like, I, well, I could never deal with that. I could, it will, if it happens to you, yes, you can. Like we're so, yes, you can. And it's, it doesn't mean it's not really fucking hard. Of course. Like I wouldn't, you know, like when people, everyone's struggling, right? Like pain is universal. Everyone has lost. Every human has trauma on some level. I don't care who you are. You can, you can be in denial about it, but you do. And I would never look at them and be like, good luck. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be able to grow. Like it's so hard and it's so painful and it breaks my heart. I don't want anyone to have to suffer, right? Ever. Like I would never wish loss or death or divorce or pain on anyone. But in the same breath, what I know that I know that I know is like, these are our invitations to like, they get to be like, they become like my pain has become my privilege and it doesn't define me anymore. It's not who I am. It's what ended up being the thing that was the catalyst to becoming who I was meant to be. And that feels like a privilege to me. And so I want to say, like, there's so much hope. Like, this isn't the end. And I know so many people are struggling. Like, I, I'm a feeler. Like, I feel the collective fear and pain. Like, there's so much trauma going on right now. And I am so privileged. I, <laughs> I get to stay home. I can work from home. I have money to pay my bills. And there's so many that are just in such painful, hard, traumatic, there are kids that are home right now with abusive parents and they can't escape. And that makes me want to like, oh, but in the same breath, like I can hold that in one hand. And in the other hand, I can hold on to so much hope and know that we were created to heal, that we were created. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits, we're longing for homeostasis to, to heal. And this is not the end. This is an invitation. And that gives me hope for like all of us, you know, it really does. And I have to hold on to that when I feel more in the other hand where I'm like, oh my God, there's so much pain. There's so much, you know, and even like I was, of course, you know, we had this big tour plan, all these things. And everyone's life turned upside down and no one's life looks like what we expected. But now I'm like, this is perfect. Like this is a story about my life turning upside down and finding hope and resilience and healing and joy and all the things like my hope is that this story can be just like a, a balm, you know, like a healing balm for those that are in the midst of just 
craziness that we're living through in a global pandemic. It's insane. Like what in the world? So I don't know. I feel really honored that this gets to come out in this time. You know, I feel honored that you spoke to me about it, that you're speaking to my listeners about it, that you wrote it and that everybody can have this. And oh my gosh, it's just, you are an incredible person and I am honored to even get to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you for all that you did. And thank you for coming on. And I'm sorry for being late and you're um, perfect. Happy, happy, happy pub day. And I'm so excited for you. you. And I can't wait to just follow you forever and, you know, just, you know, be a big cheerleader and supporter in any way I can, because you are just the best. You are so precious and I'm so honored to, this is my first interview on Pub Day. (laughs) What a beautiful way to start my day with your precious face. So I'm so grateful that you would give me the space to get to share my story and your encouragement honestly means so, so much. And none of that is like (laughs) lost on me and I'm so appreciative and thank you for your support and your generosity and kindness. It, It really means so much. Of course. Oh my gosh. Well, enjoy the fruits of your labors today. I know it's not, I'm sure what you expected, but (laughs) I know you you will find the joy in it. I don't even have to tell you you're like a joy seeker, but you know, take a minute to just be so proud of yourself because it's really amazing. So thank you so much, sister. I appreciate it. Have a beautiful day inside. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye, Ruthie. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Recliner NYC for being a partner, for giving everybody a discount of 20% off with the code MOMSXRECLINER and for partnering with me after I loved your product so much. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.